This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. We gonna do what they say can be done. We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. I'm eastbound just like no bandit run. Keep your foot hard on the pedal, son. Never mind them brakes. Let it all hang out, cause we gotta run to make. We figure any show that starts out with Jerry Reed's immortal eastbound and down just can't be that bad of a show. Hope so, anyway, and our excuse for using that wonderful piece of music is um, this news item. A new record was set last week in the so-called Cannonball Run. Possibly most familiar to you, the listenership, through those two cheesy movies with Burt Reynolds made back in the 1970s. The movies were based on a real event originating with editor of Car and Driver magazine and race car driver Brock Yates, who decided back in 1971, in partial protest to what he saw as some bad cars coming out of Detroit, uh, that he would reproduce an effort made originally back in the 1930s by an Irwin G. Cannonball Baker, a man who made the coast-to-coast trip in the 1920s in 60 hours. In a test drive in May of 1971, Brock Yates and a cohort drove a van from New York to California in less than 41 hours and thought they could do a lot better than that. So he set up an unofficial contest that had no prize money, though evidently it did offer a trophy that was made of old tools. So it was that by November 15th, In the year 1971, they were ready to try it again. There were eight entrants this time, driving sports cars, vans equipped with extra gas tanks, and a 27-foot motorhome. Three drivers were delivering a new Cadillac to an owner's home in California, along with the promise they would keep it off the road after 9 p.m. and not exceed 75 miles an hour. Brock Yates later wrote, "Uh, Naturally, all the regulations would be violated before we left Manhattan. Yates asked a fellow race car driver, Dan Gurney, to join him because he'd managed to obtain a Ferrari for the second go-around. At first, Gurney turned him down, but the night before the race was to begin, he called him and said, I'm ready to go on the cannonball. With Gurney in the driver's seat of the Ferrari, Brock Yates watched the maps and kept an eye out for the cops. When lights approached them from behind, Gurney slowed down, but it was just a Camaro roaring past them at 100 miles an hour. I would imagine trying to show the Ferrari what for. So Gurney gave the Ferrari some gas and sped away. As the Camaro's headlights disappeared behind them, he casually said, that's 150, steady as you please. Anyway, the Ferrari did win the race. They pulled into a motel in Redondo Beach, California, which was a designated finish line, 35 hours and 54 minutes after leaving New York City. They made four more cannonball runs in the 1970s, including one in which Brock Yates and his co-driver were at the wheel of a specially painted van outfitted as an ambulance and also capable of going 130. The final cannonball contest took place in 1979 with 40 entrants, but Yates decided to end the race before there was a serious crash. It was getting a little unwieldy and a little bit dangerous. 
Yates later wrote a screenplay, which got made into The Cannonball Run, starring Burt Reynolds, Farrah Fawcett, Dom DeLuise, Dean Martin, and Sammy Davis Jr. I think Frank Sinatra also. Now, not to say I've never tried anything this crazy myself, although once I did leave the Bay Area destined for Washington, D.C. This is back in about 1976. Our goal was to have three drivers and to get there as fast as we could. Well, not really as fast as we could. We decided to ski one day in Utah, which we did. And actually, it was there that we picked up our third driver, a guy we met on the slopes who was intent upon going back east. It's funny how things work out. But uh, this latest run really does, I think, take the cake. They drove 2,825 miles, dodging highway patrol officers, avoiding roadside deer, and they went through 13 states in 27 hours, 25 minutes. And it should be noted, they didn't get pulled over once. To do this, you have to average 103, which they did. Their top speed was 193 miles an hour, according to a GPS readout. Obviously, they conducted this thing with a lot of extra equipment and uh, did it in, with military precision. Some of the authorities along the way took a dim view of this, hearing about it uh, later. Apparently, uh, Craig Vitan, a spokesman for the Ohio State Highway Patrol, said that even with preparation, no one can predict a stray animal or an unfolding crash up ahead, and car safety designs are not engineered for triple-digit speeds, which I'm, all of the above, I'm sure, is true. Reportedly, the, uh, the guys on the winning team deployed a laser diffuser, which alerts drivers when a police laser gun is using, being used to register speed. The device will scramble the laser for a couple of seconds, which they say is long enough to slow down. They also put a uh, brake light kill switch, which helped the team avoid signaling police that they were braking and braking hard. Turns out their secret weapon, though, were spotters along the journey in other cars and in the back seat. They had a college student back there armed with gyro-stabilized binoculars tapped to look for police cars ahead or going the other way. Anyway, I have to confess, I, I find this whole thing sort of amusing. I've got a great idea. Yeah? A driverless car cannonball run. Yeah, that, that'd be interesting if it didn't kill 10 people along the way. And yeah, we're cheating slightly, I suppose, in using uh, <laughs> Eastbound and Down as the theme for this because it was used in Smokey and the Bandit, not the cannonball run part one and part two, but uh, I think we're splitting hairs with that one. This, of course, gives me a chance to quote a little bit from the autobiography of Burt Reynolds, a guy we're kind of sorry we never had a chance to interview for this show. Said Burt at the end of the book, by 1980, I'd done a string of car chase movies, Light, White Lightning, Gator, Smoking the Bandit 1 and 2, and Hooper. I wanted to try other genres and swore that I wouldn't drive a car over the speed limit in another movie. Then, Hal Needham, and the automotive writer Brock Yates came up with The Cannonball Run, a script based on an illegal cross-country car race. It sounded like so much fun I couldn't resist, and I was paid $5 million to make it. I was told that set a record at the time. A year later, I couldn't get my phone calls returned. I'd chosen too many films because I liked the location. Jamaica? I'll take it. Or The Leading Lady. Or because I'd been working with friends. If the script was crap... I rationalized that I could make it better. And I usually did, but it was just better crap. I didn't open myself to new writers or risky parts because I wasn't interested in challenging myself as an actor. I was interested in having a good time. As a result, I missed a lot of opportunities to, to show I could play serious roles. By the time I finally woke up and tried to get it right, nobody would give me a chance. I'm not bitter. 
It happens to a lot of actors. He added, I've been rich and I've been poor and miserable both times. Rich and miserable is better. I don't know how much money I've made and spent, and I don't want to know. Finally noting, I may not be the best actor in the world, but I'm the best Burt Reynolds in the world. And Mr. Miller does point out that, you know, he, he was pretty good in Deliverance, and, and I have to agree, he was. And he was pretty damn good in Boogie Nights. He was up for an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor in that, and there was hope that it might revive his career, but alas, the award went to someone else. And as we segue from Cannonball Runs and Burt Reynolds to Astronomy, something which, to my knowledge, has never been attempted before, I would note that if you go out and have clear skies to your west this week, you should see the planets Venus and Saturn close to one another. And I don't know, dear listener, whether you've been privileged to ever catch the green flash, that moment uh, when the, the last little bit of sun dips before the, below the horizon, and there's a flash of green light. It's not a trick of your eyes. It can be photographed. It's an atmospheric phenomenon. I'm still not sure that they really understand it. There are various theories as to why it happens. But it surprises me to note that apparently the planet Venus is also capable of producing a green flash. At least so the article in spaceweather.com noted a few weeks back. Now it really helps in the case of Venus to have it set over a body of water at sunset. And a temperature inversion wouldn't hurt either may, according to some, be even easier to see a green flash with Venus than the sun because Venus is a smaller point of light. I don't know about that. I've never seen a green flash with the planet, but by God, I'm going to give it a give it a shot here sometime this winter. Because I do look up things related to astronomy from time to time, master spies Sergey Brin and Larry Page have taken note, and I really need to quit searching things on Google. That said... Their algorithms seem to be a little bit imperfect. They, they don't quite distinguish always between astronomy and astrology. There's a difference? <laughs> Thus, I was given an alert some days ago about the upcoming eclipse, which will take place in Capricorn. Well, to astrologers it will. If you take the time, as I did, to look up the actual position of the sun on the date in question, you will find that it, it will be in the 13th constellation of the zodiac, Ophiuchus. Anyway, astrologers have had centuries to update their charts and get them up to speed, and, you know, they really should start now. Something I really was not aware of till I read Bob Berman's column in my issue of the Old Farmer's Almanac was that the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn are both mislabeled. Well, a couple thousand years ago, the sun at its highest and it, at its lowest were indeed in Cancer and Capricorn, respectively, but things have changed since then. Due to the Earth's axis and its 26,000-year-long wobble, the star pattern behind the sun at the solstice is now at the Gemini-Taurus boundary, and in fact, nowhere near Cancer. So there you go. I'm disappointed, by the way, to note that it is no longer possible to get a local edition of the Old Farmer's Almanac. It originally came out of Boston, and years ago that's all you could buy was the edition that focused in on, you know, the tides in Boston Harbor, for example. Not so useful for people that live on the West Coast. Well, no doubt, thanks to the impingement of the Internet on our lives and the fact that people don't buy things made of paper so much anymore, they had to cut back, and uh, so went our 
local edition, which uh, tells me that the sunset tonight will be at 4.11, and, and it will be for people living in Boston. Now, one of our regular contributors to this program uh, called me uh, a few days ago and wanted to tell me about something that was trending on the Internet. I instructed him to stop right then and, in fact, not inform me of anything that was trending on the Internet because I didn't want to know what was trending. It had something to do with uh, someone not knowing who Van Halen was. But anyway, this whole thing about what's trending has apparently moved from the Internet onto the, uh, the pages of things like the old Farmer's Almanac. They had two trends that caught my eye. One was that according to a researcher at the University of British Columbia, municipal governments are now investing in urban nature, spurred by growing evidence how green space affects our social health and physical well-being. Now, at the present time, I, I'm living in the East Bay and have labored long and hard to turn my backyard into a pleasing green space. Because... I do think that it has a salubrious effect upon our social health and physical well-being. There's an irony in the other item that the old farmers noted as a 2019 trend. In this case, it was from another member of the British Columbia Association, in this case of Farmers Markets, who noted that young people are cutting their teeth as urban farmers in the cities and then moving into rural areas into a more traditional model of small-scale farming. The irony for me in this is that uh, although people have now recognized that having green open space around you is very good for you, real estate developers have decided that taking that open green space and turning it into housing and shopping centers and, and, and of late high-density housing makes lots of money. Two-tenths of a mile from my house was the last farm in, uh, in, in the region. And yes, they did grow their own vegetables and sell them right there in a fruit stand. Currently, it's being built upon. They're going to cram uh, lots and lots of tech workers into this little rabbit warren-like worker housing. But I, I did note, as I drove past uh, today, that they are planting some trees around it. So there will be some, some green space still. And in one final item related to agriculture, which again comes uh, to us via the Old Farmer's Almanac, there's this. Apparently, the good people at the Soil Conservation Council of Canada have worked out a way when you, to assess the healthiness of the soil, which you have to work with. It is called the Underwear Soil Test. And here's what you're asked to do. Step one, dig a hole six to eight inches deep in your garden or field bed. Bury a pair of clean, 100% cotton, white or undyed men's underwear. Of course, the waistband will not be 100% cotton, but you can repeat this as desired. Step two, leave them for two months. Step three, <laughs> dig up the briefs from the soil. The amount of remaining cotton fabric indicates roughly the amount of earthworms, fungi, bacteria, and other microscopic organisms in your soil or its organic quality. If only the waistband remains, the organic quality is very high. If most of the drawers remain, however, the soil is lacking in biological life because it has been overused. To which I would add, if you dig your underwear up and it's still wearable, you probably need to start a compost pile and enriching your soil with uh, some additives. All right, let's take a detour back into the world of show business. I saw an ad in the East Bay Times informing us that the Glenn Miller Orchestra 
is going to be coming to the San Jose Theater next spring. It's described as the world-famous Glenn Miller Orchestra and prompts me to ask, how the hell can this be? Glenn Miller died during World War II. Anyway, if any of you out there have any explanation for how it is you can construct a Glenn Miller Orchestra (laughs) around someone who passed away or whose plane was seen to go down off the British coast circa 1942, well, then drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. And from the world of broadcasting, we have a couple of things. First, that I listened in the other day to Armstrong and Getty, who, to my sorrow, are now heard on KGO in San Francisco. I had to listen to these two clowns blathering on about these Trump-hating stations out there and networks. And just thought to myself, you know, it's bad enough when they were on the air in Sacramento. Why does why does the Bay Area have to be subjected to these guys? Alas, they used to have such an all-star lineup of listenable talk show hosts on uh, on on KGO, and they're pretty much all gone now. Dr. Dina Dell is retired. Dr. Bill Wattenberg has passed away. We understand Jim Eason is still alive and living back in North Carolina somewhere. And we made some uh, idle remarks about tracking him down a couple years ago, but we never have and probably won't. But we ought to. He'd be fun to talk to. Also, in the San Francisco Bay Area, radio analyst Tim Ryan, who uh, takes part in the San Francisco 49ers broadcast, got suspended this past week, which possibly allowed him to watch that remarkable game between the New Orleans Saints and San Francisco 49ers without having to uh, talk into a microphone. But at any rate, KNBR decided to uh, suspend him for what they call disappointing remarks he made about the 49ers' loss to the Baltimore Ravens. Apparently what Tim Ryan said that irked people was that the quarterback, the outstanding quarterback of the Baltimore Ravens, Lamar Jackson, who's having, well, I I think this week he became the second quarterback in NFL history to run for 1,000 yards. That ain't easy to do. He played a hell of a game in that uh, last-minute victory over the 49ers, 20-17. And I did notice when I was watching the game, that the camera crew was having a hard time following some of the plays. Tim Ryan said that he thought that Lamar Jackson's dark skin helped him disguise a dark football when running fake handouts, particularly since they were wearing dark uniforms. Now, watching the game, you know, the camera crew is usually pretty good at following where the ball is. They were getting faked out again and again and following the wrong guy in that game. So is it plausible that a dark football against a dark uniform and dark skin could aid the process of, you know, being deceptive in the backfield? I think a fair-minded person would have to say, well, yeah, it's plausible. Anyway, Tim Ryan apologized, said, I regret my choice of words in trying to describe the conditions of the game. Lamar Jackson is an MVP caliber player, and I respect him greatly. I want to sincerely apologize to him and anyone else I offended. I don't know. Aren't we, aren't we getting just a little too touchy about some things? To round out this discussion, I, I did try to go to my uh, bookshelf to pull out a volume that I've made passing reference to over the years on occasion. The author, a black man, wrote about why it was blacks seemed to excel to such a remarkable degree in many sports, and why people were very uncomfortable talking about it. Unfortunately, it turns out the the book is at the family cabin and, and not available. Its title was Taboo. If you're not afraid to look at this subject, dear listener, you might want to check it out. I was having a brief discussion 
on this subject with my neighbor. His father, John Lissack, we had on this program a couple months ago. John was on the same team in 1936 as Jesse Owens and had a chance to talk with Jesse about his uh, remarkable experience in the Berlin Olympics, where he apparently irritated the hell out of Adolf Hitler. We were discussing the remarkable success the black athletes have had in sprinting events in the Olympics and in setting world records. I was trying to recall the statistic from the book, which unfortunately I can't refresh my memory on at the moment, but they did pose the question of how far down the list of the world's best sprinters you have to go to find someone who's not black. My neighbor Keith said, what, 15? I said, as I recall from the book, you had to go down to something like the 330th place. Anyway, I know this topic does make a lot of people uncomfortable, but it, I, I don't know, as a biology major, I find it very interesting. As a physician, I find it interesting. If the black population of the world is like 1 billion, that's, that's just a guess, it's probably about right, and we've got 7 billion people on Earth, that means 15% of the world population is black. So statistically speaking, it's pretty clear that being a good sprinter is not something that's just randomly distributed among all the people of Earth. I welcome your feedback on this topic, dear listener. Another reason for you to drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. And in a final item related to broadcasting, I note with some sadness the seventh and final episode of the sixth and final season of that wonderful television program, Silicon Valley. I want to give a lot of credit to Alex Berg and Mike Judge for what they produced on HBO. It's a true classic that'll be with us a long time. At this point in my life, I've seen a lot of final episodes to a lot of great runs on, uh, on, on TV. Not that I'm a TV fan by any stretch, but there are some quality programs. Like many decades ago, The Jack Parr Show. I was just a kid, but I really liked watching Jack Parr, and I remember his last program with a great deal of sadness. I think most of you, or at least, a, I shouldn't say that, a good number of you will, like guys, remember the final Tonight Show featuring Johnny Carson, who took over after Jack Parr left. They really did pull out the stops in the last uh, last couple weeks' worth of programs. People who never appeared in The Tonight Show decided they wanted to, like Elizabeth Taylor. And so, too, was it, you know, a wistful and sad time when David Letterman finally decided to check off of late-night television. And I just have to editorialize just a little bit that, you know, we're just, we just don't have replacements for Johnny Carson or David Letterman. We talked on last week's program about a rather remarkable Star Wars holiday special they had back circa 1978, I think it was, that is just breathtakingly horrible. It falls into that category of, of, of it's, it's so bad, it's, it's almost good. But I would note, in my opinion, and this is an opinion that is mine alone, the Saturday Night Live Christmas special, which I tragically saw part of, might also be described as so bad it's almost good. I forced myself to watch about 15 minutes of it, waiting for a laugh that never came. Although I do know that a lot of people still find, you know, something that amuses them in Saturday Night Live. I called our L.A. correspondent uh, Don Rose, who has over the years attended various Hollywood parties with people like Lorne Michaels, John Lovitz, Phil Hartman, etc. I asked him what the deal was with the laugh track on Saturday Night Live. Now, many years ago, uh, both Don and I made appearances on the Win Ben Stein's Money program, where the both of us bumped up against future late-night TV star, if you want to call him a star, Jimmy Kimmel. 
And both of us had the experience of sitting in a TV show audience watching how an underemployed comic or comic wannabe works the crowd to get them to laugh at things that are not funny. So they weren't using a laugh track per se. They were using real humans to laugh in a phony fashion. I would add in describing this scene that most of my fellow audience members appeared to be homeless people. Or if they weren't exactly homeless people, let's just say they were close. If you would laugh in a boisterous and phony enough fashion well enough to uh, please the cheerleader down in front, he would occasionally toss out things like t-shirts. Personally, I was hoping he was going to lob a bottle of shampoo or two out to the crowd. Bar of Ivory wouldn't have hurt either. Well, of course, in this case, maybe, maybe they should have gone with lava. Anyway, from personal experience, I've seen this phony baloney nonsense that goes along with them trying to evoke a laugh out of something that just plain isn't funny. So when I watched Saturday Night Live, this Christmas special, which was getting laughs every time somebody uttered something, regardless of whether it was even remotely funny or not, well, I smelled a rat. (laughs) And you know, at some future installment of this program, we're going to take a look at the laugh track. Actually, more properly, revisit it, because something like 10 or 12 years ago, we did do a segment on it. Anyway, suffice it to say that one dirty secret about uh, phony laugh tracks being grafted onto TV programs is that a lot of these laughs are being recycled from TV shows wherein they were recorded back like in the 50s. Meaning that the odds are actually fairly high that uh, the people you hear laughing on these programs with pre-recorded laugh tracks um, are all dead. And that, Mr. Milne likes to note, is not funny at all. All right, we're up against it on the break here, so I think I'm just going to throw out a few short miscellaneous items to round out this segment. From the noted section of the week, here's a couple. First, the House of Representatives has passed nearly 400 bills since the Democrats took control of the chamber in 2018. But the vast majority haven't even received a vote in the Republican-controlled Senate. The full Congress has passed only 70 bills into law this year. And you should note, 10 of those were for renaming federal facilities. Typically, notes Vox.com, Congress passes 150 to 250 bills a year. And I would actually, though, be the first to concede that just because Congress is passing bills doesn't mean our lives are getting better. And we would note with some sadness that The Guardian is reporting that for the second time in a year, Republican lawmakers have introduced a bill in the Ohio state legislature that would require doctors to attempt to reimplant an embryo from an ectopic pregnancy into a woman's uterus or face murder charges. Now, uh, as a licensed physician, which, which I am, I have to verify the Guardian's contention that such a procedure does not, in fact, exist. Yet, if Ohio legislators have their way, a doctor could, could be charged with murder for not attempting a procedure which medical science has not yet come up with. And, uh, oh, by way of medical education, an ectopic pregnancy is one in which the embryo, it plants itself not in the uterus, where it should do well, but instead in the fallopian tube. This does happen from time to time, and the results are generally fatal. And, and yes, I mean to the mother, not the fetus. 
And finally, up in the state of South Dakota, their governor is defending a widely mocked new anti-drug campaign they're running. It features the slogan, Meth, we're on it. Online critics said the campaign, which shows the slogan superimposed over South Dakota's outline, suggests that the entire state is on methamphetamines. Governor Christy Noam said she welcomes the reaction since the campaign's goal is to raise awareness. Let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. And I would note in closing that our motto here on the show is, meth, we're not on it. (laughs) 